This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast touched by alien angel dust and granted wondrous powers to entertain and inform. Today we're discussing the HBO Max show The Nevers, whose first batch of episodes has just completed. These episodes were run by Joss Whedon of Buffy, Firefly, and Avengers fame, so we'll also talk about its place in his corpus. I'm Mark Linton-Meyer, and I was never supposed to have a third podcast. This is Erica Spires, and I'm not sure if my turn is best used to turn the beat around, turn, 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 or just turn around. And I'm Brian Hurt. Looking forward to a context-free discussion about a charming show of mutant Victorian Scoobies. <laughs> Scoobies? What does that mean? That was what the gang on Buffy, they were always referred to. In fact, they referred to themselves as the Scoobies ah. pretty quickly. That was me adding context to the context-free discussion. That tells you... I was doing a thing. <laughs> a little about, we should give some priors. So we are kind of torn. Should this be the Whedon episode? No, it's not going to be the Whedon episode. But we should still give our priors anyway. <laughs> we all had some experience with the Whedonverse. I, I watched a couple seasons of Buffy. I watched all of Dollhouse when it came out. Watched all of Firefly and, of course, his big Marvel and DC stuff. There you go. And y'all? Erica? So, yeah, I was a Buffy fan. I didn't start it when it started, but I believe I caught up. No. I must have watched it all after the fact. In any case, I got super into it, and I remember being very emotionally invested. And then I saw some of Firefly, but to be honest with you, it never hit me in the way that everybody told me it should about, you know, like how great it was. Didn't see any of Dollhouse, but I've always like, well, up until recently, and we get more context, always really enjoyed the things that he did. And we'll talk about how much I enjoyed this or not. Brian? So between Erica having seen some of Firefly. Between the two of us, I think we've seen this series seven and a half times. Holy moly. Yeah, that's really been my favorite of of the Whedon stuff and the movie and some of the comics. And I did watch the first five seasons of Buffy. I never loved it. I always wanted to like it more than I did. Didn't get through Dollhouse. Enjoyed his Marvel movies well enough, I suppose. And with some reservations, quite enjoyed many aspects of the nevers which we are talking about today what is the nevers everybody for those who haven't watched it go ahead brian (laughs) the nevers is the charming show about mutant victorious goobies so it is a prestige series on hbo and the way you know that is at the start of the first episode it tells you where you can listen to the official podcast so when they're trying to make a show happen right there is the official podcast that accompanies it which by the way i don't know if anyone listened to that yes no 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 all right that makes three of us it's like the bare minimum that we could do for secondary sources but no no (laughs) well done everybody so a celestial otherworldly some kind of event has happened over london in the late 19th century and many of the downtrodden are given what can only be described as x-men like mutant powers and we follow the show the events pick up three years after that event has happened where a group of under class referred to as the touched largely women but also some other second class citizens including some of a foreign descent are caught in a struggle with other forces that seek to destroy them and this is definitely has a lot of flavors of steampunk as well as uh, straight up science fiction in this show And would we say that most famous person in this is Nick Frost? 
Sure. In a super minor role. Yeah. Or unless I'm Olivia Williams, I'm trying to think. I know. I, I feel like... It, it, not a lot of big names in, in this program. In the U.S., he is probably the biggest name. Pip Torrens. I would wonder if in Britain he still holds as the, the, the most popular one, but uh, I don't know. He definitely was the most surprising in terms of casting. And for those looking to watch season one, keep waiting. The first six episodes came out and due to some interruptions related to mostly COVID is my understanding due to, oh my gosh. You know, I am so glad that I have been accused of making (laughs) potty jokes so many times that you actually, that's right. I know, by you. So <laughs> I never aged out of being a 12-year-old boy. Yeah, so did you all know this was a Whedon property before you watched the first episode? Or were you in the dark about that? I, totally in the dark. I did not. And as we were considering this, this is sort of a last-minute choice for an episode, just something we happen to all been watching due to each other's uh, mm-hmm. recommendations. But I reached out to, <laughs> I reached out to uh, more than one person who I knew to be a Whedon fanatic and they were not familiar with the show. (laughs) So it is not the way it is being promoted, but he was, from what I understand, he did not quit the show until after all six of these were made. So this is the Whedon version of this. And as it goes on, it will be something else. I'd like to start out by saying I have really high hopes for this series. It wasn't because of the Whedon relationship. I should say it wasn't because of the Whedon relationship and all the negativity towards Whedon lately necessarily why I was hot and cold with this series. It was more because of the Whedon verse and the way that he tells stories sometimes that I find to be a bit convoluted that I was on again, off again. However, I have very high hopes for what it's going to be because we were given a lot of material. And I think that was part of the problem of this show is we had six episodes, multiple characters to follow, multiple timelines it ended up to follow. Is that a spoiler? Should I not say that? (sighs) Well, we already talked about how the story jumps forward in time three years. And we do go back and forth between the inciting incident and then the contemporaneous story. And what do we think about spoilers for this? Well, I think we're going to have to get into them at some point. Okay. For the beginning of it, at the very least, I don't want to get too into that. I just want to say, I think that we are left with a lot of rich material to be mined in future seasons. And I think that sometimes when you have such a great first season and it can feel like a complete package, it's almost a shame to keep it going. But in this one, I'm interested to see where it would go. I am a little concerned that it will. I'm already kind of at the limit of whether I care. <laughs> it's Why, not, Why uh, is that? And I don't exactly know. Mm-hmm. And even though I'm not going to spoil right now what happens in the last episode, I had to rewatch the beginning of it because it was contextless. It shifts to something else. And I was just like, I barely cared enough about what was going on in the main show. I certainly don't want to absorb another thing. And then once the context was made clear, then like, okay, now I'll watch it back from the beginning and I'll pay attention more (laughs) because I just wasn't picking up the relevant information about the world that was being revealed in this. Because I just didn't, I didn't like that. I, I, and I think there's something to be said about this being too much of an ensemble show. There being too many things going on. If it really was just the story of these two women of Amalia True and Penance Adair, 
I don't know. What do you think? Like, is it really just the story of them and everybody else is sort of peripheral? Right. I think the best version of the show is that. I mean, one of the problems that I have with it is that because, at least when it was getting made, because Joss Whedon has so much clout, I think it ended up not having maybe other cooler heads prevail to say, you know, this is too many characters, too many storylines. No one said no to him. And as a result, it became kind of this messy thing. And a lot of time ends up being devoted to these story arcs, which, in my opinion, if it doesn't get addressed in episode six, like, what have we been doing with it for episodes one through five? Like, why do we spend so much time with these side characters if it's not part of the real narrative thrust of the story so far? Unlike both of you, I think I might have enjoyed it more than either of you. I was totally all in on episode six, where I felt like its biggest problem was its lack of explaining itself or things that seemed to just not make any sense. And then when I finished episode six, I said, well, gosh, it explains so much in a way that felt meaningful to me. I wasn't sure if I wanted to go read a bunch about it or watch episodes one through five again for all the little bits that I thought, well, that wasn't explained and she shouldn't be able to do that. And that's kind of stupid to, oh, I see what's happening. So I think without spoiling episode six, it reveals a lot that I think explains so many things that it's like, wait, did you forget to explain this? Or is this lazy storytelling? And it's like, oh, no, you just wanted to reveal it and and give a ton of context to the story in the sixth episode. Is that still lazy storytelling, though? When you wait till the very last episode to give the context and before that, you just leave people confused the whole time. It's a different kind of lazy. Right. There is one kind, which is, well, I'm just not going to bother. Or one thing is one of our two main characters, True, she has kick ass fighting skills in a way that isn't really explained to us. And I found sort of irritating because all the different people in their little orphanage, they have powers from having been touched. And we were led to think that her power was an ability to see flashes into the future. Whether that is really the case, we won't get into. But it really wasn't explained why she was also this super street fighter. Well, the super lazy way is to just not explain why she's that way. The somewhat less lazy way is to explain in episode six. A really good way would have been to hint that we were going to have it explained to us. Right? The best reveals are reveals that you figure out five seconds before it's told to you. So for anyone who watched The Sixth Sense, hopefully it wasn't a surprise when you figured out the twist. You should have figured out the twist, but only like 10 seconds before it was told to you. And that's the best kind of storytelling. So yeah, I'll grant Erica that it wasn't perfect, but it also, the word Galanthi, I believe, comes up in episode five. And it's like, well, where did this word come from? Was it told to us? I was irritated and I had to go online to be sure that I hadn't missed it. And I hadn't. But again, that's another thing that was, at least there's a reason that the name of the celestial science fictional alien, whatever you want to call this being, it's rooted in something, even if it's not revealed to us a little later than maybe that made you happy. So I've been watching the series around the same time that I've been watching Mare of Town. I've been going back and forth between the two of them. Mare of Town's not done yet. Yeah, they're basically the same story. <laughs> well, I'm going to give you <laughs> a reason why I'm comparing the two, which is specifically about the storytelling and the pacing. The first episode of Mare of Easttown, I, as you all know, I watch all of the murder shows that are good. Well, or somewhat good. I'm a fan of a mystery. 
So first episode of Mare Town, I was like, this has potential. I like all these characters. They're somewhat of a mystery, but I'm not like, it feels a little slow to me, right? Maybe it's just because we're in pandemic mode and I need more excitement in my life. But I, w- I felt like, yeah, it's a little slow. And then it continues episode by episode to pick up and tell you more. This show, to me, had some really exciting moments in every single episode, but also had many moments of, what's this conversation about? Why, did, why is this scene here? I don't understand. Why are they talking about something in the middle of a conversation that uh, do I, am I supposed to have context for this? Did I just forget? I found myself doing that in pretty much every episode. It wasn't until episode six. And I, and I, like I said, I enjoyed a lot of the episodes, but I always had a time where I was confused or frustrated by the lack of either specificity or context given. By the time I got to episode six, I was able to put all of that together. And by the way, the beginning of episode six, I also felt exactly the same way and completely confused. And then when it finally came together, I was like, now, isn't that clever? And don't I like this? And doesn't this all make sense? But I was also left kind of pissed off that I had five episodes of what the hell. And then I was given, in a slight spoiler, brand new characters that I was supposed to care about all of a sudden. This is why I think for me, a season two will be, I think, better than season one, because I will know a bit more and I will care more about the characters. Well, this could be a case of we're getting out of this series. One of the things that we always ask for, and then we find that maybe we didn't want that after all, which is... What's that? It's most TV shows insult your intelligence, right? They just are, they're too... Let's just spoon feed it. So even the youngest, most inexperienced or the person who's not paying very much attention will still be able to pick up. And in the time of binging and things, people have gotten more savvy and they have, you can have something like Game of Thrones with a million characters. And so compared to that, this seems like maybe, you know, maybe you should just kind of show more. Don't be quite so theatrical about everything. Like if you have enough things, like the stage show, right? Where the one mutant does her song that all the other mutants can hear. And like, that was so easy to understand and cinematic. And the fact that then it turns into a bunch of fighting, <laughs> like there are things that to, for your low pleasures that maybe having some things that you're not necessarily going to immediately pick up on, or you have to really pay attention to, or that reward repeated watchings, that actually should be a good thing. It's just, I haven't watched this twice yet. Maybe I will when we're heading into the second half. That's why it makes sense, Mark, for them to do it on HBO, because you could have exposition in a room full of boobs <laughs> and just like Game of Thrones. Yeah. yeah. I thought the mutant bordello was particularly irritating because it was done so well in The Boys. It was integral to the story and it was smart in a way that it was not smart, particularly in this show, unless it has some payoff. And we are still judging a show based on half a season, which is... Wait, is this just the mid-season finale, really? Yeah, technically this is... I mean, they've even been marketing it as catch the first season, but they've also talked about this as being half of the planned first season. So it's hard to know what to make of it. But I don't feel like we were supposed to have found resolution necessarily. It will be very weird going to a new showrunner because if it was a mid-season thing and they really hadn't produced the second half, there is an opportunity for things to take to veer off or even take a, a pretty sharp turn. In response to this podcast. In response. That's right. 
Erica, I saw a lot of similarities with Mirror of Easttown just based on, I feel like this show jammed maybe 18 shows worth of story into six shows. So like that's three times, whereas Mirror of Easttown managed to stretch two episodes worth of show into six. So again, a multiplier of three. I can't believe how little story there is in Mirror of Easttown. I mean, related to the actual crime, but that's another podcast for another day. Regarding these new characters, were you familiar with the actor who played the head of this different set of characters in season six, Claudia Black? She looked really familiar to me and I couldn't figure out why and I loved her. There's a reason she was cast. I think it was so we would, those who are science fiction watchers would key in on her and have sympathy right away because she was one of the leads in Farscape and also in one of the Stargate shows. And so people who watch stuff should have, or who watch somewhat garbagey science fiction, but a lot of it would immediately recognize her and say, oh yeah, it's Claudia Black. I love her. Well, can I say that I have watched all of Farscape and I do like Claudia Black. I didn't recognize her because her hair was covered. It was different. I, I don't know. There was something about the way she was delivering the character. Once it was sort of, I think I was watching the, like the after, you know, the behind the scenes interviews and it showed her with, you know, all splayed out and not in a military costume, having been just pretending to be dead and, you know, that, that particular situation that she was in. Then yes. Okay. The doors open, but I failed the test. That's just sad. She's also from Pitch Black. Yeah, you're right. Thank you for that. Sure. You know, she's great. Yeah, she was, she was excellent. And she has a different accent than her normal accent. So all of those things. She's Australian by dint of being on Farscape, I would imagine mm-hmm. she was. You know, we haven't talked about it. It could be that Olivia Williams is the most famous actor in this show. I mean, you mentioned the, the one that, with the ghosts. The, the Sixth Sense. Six Sense. Yes, she's from that yeah. and many other things. So it is revealed... This is a minor spoiler, like for the first episode that she sort of... Why don't we just go ahead and give spoilers now? Even though she is the Professor X character that has provided these, the touched with their safe haven, she's also behind the bad guys, the Dennis O'Hare mad scientist character that are Mm -hmm. kidnapping and torturing. Was it really revealed in the way that they did with some other characters, like what her motivation is and why she's doing this? Or is that a second half of the first season thing that we... I don't believe that was revealed, but I wonder if she is the other being that hitched a ride into another body. Or was it the Beggar King? Or was it? I mean, it could have been any number. Could be the Doctor, right? There could be a lot of people. Lord Masson. How did you feel about hanging a lampshade on X-Men, putting her in a wheelchair? (laughs) Did you groan or did you just roll with it? Until somebody said, oh, it's like X-Men. I just wasn't even thinking that. Because to me, all my comparisons were to previous Whedon material rather than X-Men. But of course, yes, once you bring it up, it's like, oh, clearly, even some of the shots they do of the orphanage look just like Xavier's Institute. There's also an indefinite number of mutants, which I guess is sort of like the X-Men, but they're still like a core team. Whereas this one, even just like looking at, and here's the, I'm like, wait, who, who are you referring to? Somebody's really strong. I, you know, there are kind of a few too many of them, which, like in Mayor of Easttown, having a few too many characters means that you can have a better mystery. And so when it looks like, oh, somebody in, you know, in the group is a double agent of some sort, not that I spent any time sort of wondering about which of them is it. Like, was that a particular 
when it's revealed, it's an interesting plot thing. But was that supposed to be something that we were kind of anticipating and wondering a mystery? Just the question of who's touched and who isn't? No, no. Within the group of touched, somebody was betraying them. That is revealed like four episodes in or something. It wasn't that compelling to me. I think that despite this having a clear story arc, the way the stories were told seemed very contained within their episodes. They would sort of set up stakes and resolve them on an episode by episode basis. Sometimes they would jump forward in time. I think once they jumped forward a month in a way that the mystery of who betrayed them seemed to come up and get resolved all in one episode. And maybe that harkens back to the Buffy days of, you know, you had your season long arc with the big bad, but you also kind of had your monster of the week and the thing to get brought up and resolved in that day's episode to once again, when you're not sure where to go in this discussion, just bring up some other Joss Whedon property. And there you go. Speaking of Joss, let's just uh, talk about the elephant in the room. There was an article that we looked at that was talking about how maybe Joss isn't that much of a celebrator of the, the strong woman and instead tends to show a lot of women in dire circumstances or something, you know, something terrible has happened to them. And, and somehow because of that, they become stronger. And like, yes, there's a a vulture article that we looked at. And one of the quotes from that is like Buffy dollhouse and firefly, the nevers is a show about female empowerment, but only as accessible through female degradation. And I read the article and some of the stuff I was like, huh? Yeah. And it made me think for a minute and you know, it even said something about the way that her dress was ripped away and then she like kicked ass and like how it was made to look really cool. And why is that? Like, And I was just like, what good story was ever told? Sure, there's a couple, but it's hard to find a good story where a character is already doing great and then just also feels the need to triumph over something anyway. Like most things, even if the character is doing great, then there is a crisis of some sort that they then have to overcome. It's the classic hero's journey, right? So why is it bad in this case to put Amalia, for example, in this position or the other girls? And it's not just the girls who are touched. We find that men are as well. We're just not seeing them as much, at least at this point. And I think that in the Victorian era also, it makes sense that the women were already in such a very different circumstance than than women are today. Not completely, unfortunately. But I personally don't really find a problem. I don't really have a problem with this. Am I missing something? What do the men in the room think? <laughs> I need to know what the men in the room think before I make my decision. I have a problem with it if you have a problem with it. <laughs> there is a meta level to this discussion, right? Which is, would people be having this issue with the storytelling if they weren't having an issue with Joss Whedon right now. Because I I don't see this as really fundamentally different from other kick-ass women who have to kind of walk through fire in order to... Oh my god, is that a Buffy reference? Oh, well, I guess it is. But let's go with Ellen Ripley and Sarah Connor and Furiosa, right? I mean, we see some really strong women who get battered around a lot. Now, yeah, at one point, Sigourney Reaver is running around in her underpants in the Nostromo. I I get that. And there is always some amount of sexualization that's going to be going on just through physicality and casting beautiful women. It's like, this is just, this is the, the male gaze on a female body. I mean, it's hard to get away from that, especially if someone wants to see it. 
I would be so interested to be in the parallel universe where Joss Whedon's offenses did not rise to public attention and we could see what kind of treatment this show would be getting if he was still on top of the mountain. We'll never see it. We'll, we'll never know. But I just have a feeling it would not be getting the response it's getting right now. And maybe there are other filmmakers or TV show showrunners who, if they were to be revealed to you know have issues like this, would be similarly, works would be pulled up and they would be likewise dissected and destroyed for doing this kind of portrayal of women, which is viewed as a very false type of feminism. I wasn't aware that he had drafted a Wonder Woman script. Uh, one of these articles was was talking about how it was kind of contrasting what that portrayal, which was, I think, characterized as conquering the world with her curviness with what we actually saw in Wonder Woman 1984. You know, all these strong women characters in film history that you were naming, Brian, those were all still envisioned and created by men. So we're still just entering the period of women creating these characters themselves. So I think it sort of remains to be seen how that'll be different. Because yes, you do want your characters to go through the ringer a little bit. And the more hard-edged you want the show to be, the more sort of realistic and gritty and you want that feeling out of it, then they're really going to go through the ringer. And this might again be kind of something that, wow, I thought I wanted something with that level of realism. But then when I watch a show, maybe like The Mayor of Town or Handmaid's Tale, that is all PTSD all the time, <laughs> then you find that that is just too much. So what is the balance? That if you want characters that are going through serious, gritty things, you want them to like be strengthened and rise and still be the hero, the heroine, as the case may be, and not just wallow in the reality of what going through such a horrible situation would entail. Maybe it's also partially, like you're saying, who's writing the story? Who's directing the story? Who's running the story? Because if people feel safe to tell those stories, then it seems all right, right? You know, if they feel like, yeah, this is a terrible situation, but it's one I understand or it's one I identify with, it's one I feel comfortable and, and powerful to tell in this way. But if you have a showrunner who does make you uncomfortable because you're a woman or because, like Ray Fisher, you're a black man and you feel like he's treating you differently, maybe that spoils the story for them. Maybe that spoils the character in a way that it wouldn't if the exact same thing had been written by someone who made them feel safe. This gets to something that came up in our podcasts about art, and that is, do we need to know all this stuff about how something was produced in order to consume it properly. You could have sat down and watched The Nevers and not seen the credits and not know who made it. And there is some world where Patty Jenkins could have made The Nevers and it might have been pretty similar. Or maybe it wouldn't have been. I don't know. But Or if that had been the name that ran at the end of the credits. If you just watched it with her name at the end, the same exact show, because someone created a fake credits for it, would your feeling about it be different? I don't mean you, Erica, in particular. I just mean in general, and should that matter? So I guess I'm erring on the side of, yes, I think that should matter, because it does behind the scenes. It's reflecting in some way how actors, and not just actors, but the entire creative teams feel putting together something that is then consumed by many, many people. 
And some of that, whether or not we like it, will trickle down into behaviors. Some of it won't. Some of it doesn't matter, sure. But to what extent it matters, I think, is is also up for debate. Whether it matters to us differs for whether it matters at large, because we as viewers, I think, are a little bit outliers, much the way that reviewers are. There are a lot of people who watch these programs who don't pay any attention to the credits. And if they saw the name Joss Whedon at the end, they wouldn't know if Joss was a, a man or a woman. They're just watching programs. So as much as it might be important and it might necessarily influence how we watch, I have to think there are a lot of people who just watch programs and take away from it what they take away from it without any real interest in seeking that context. And I think that's fine. I, I don't think it's a prerequisite for enjoying a program. I can't filter it out myself because yeah. I am necessarily interested, but I don't think others should have to or that should be that listening to the podcast about the show is a required listening, obviously, since none of the three of us did. Well, and what? how far does the context extend? Because so far, the reports, at least the one article that I found about Laura Donnelly, the star of this, was that it seemed like that casual cruelty that is referred to, uh, that he expressed, those behaviors were not present on this. Like, nobody has complained about this. So is that the context? You know, if a particular thing was produced, like you hear about some movie where you know, basic instinct. I was just hearing recently where she was Ugh. really tricked into doing that leg spreading, you know, famous thing or other things where maybe there even ends up being a sexual assault basically on camera because they're trying to like, real, like that is creating art from blood. <laughs> but if it's just that the person creating in another context <laughs> was disrespectful or, you know, had some personality issues. My impression in reading about him and what he's had to say is that he's a very circumspect guy, very flawed, but like seems to be able to learn from mistakes and is not just an unrepentant monster. So what does that mean in terms of how you feel about just seems there's a lot of contextual factors that you sort of need to think of it on a case by case basis. Yeah, I'm sure some people are really tired of this conversation as well. And mm -hmm. because, you know, it's been for the past, what, three or four years been going on a lot. And even before that, I mean, the first time I remember talking about this kind of issue is Michael Jackson and allegations there. But I can't help but be thankful that we do live in a time where we at least do bring up the question. And I think we do need to remember, or at least I am going to try to remember that the stories I like to watch are about flawed people. And so how can I be surprised that not only the creators of the shows are flawed people, but every single one of us is. That doesn't mean that we don't need to be held accountable. That doesn't mean that Joss Whedon won't get as many jobs now, or he might take a break for a while, and that may be a good thing. But yeah, I also, there's an innocence of a young kid out there who saw this and doesn't know anything about the context and was felt extremely empowered by watching these women. And that's freaking awesome. And I want that to exist too. I don't think there's any easy answer which is why we keep having the conversation, right? <laughs> right. I really would hope not to be judged by my worst decision in life or given a chance to, you know, work my way back from it. I feel like I don't really know enough about the Joss Whedon situation to have an informed opinion. I mean, people made decisions and I feel like casual cruelty. I just feel like Hollywood must be just full of behavior like his in a way that unfortunately i think hollywood is also full of behavior like woody allen's and i know we're we've talked about doing a show on him i'm glad we haven't and that we likely aren't going to 
And I'll only mention him to say that there's a certain point where everybody might be flawed enough that you could find a reason to take them off a program if you could like kind of find the worst thing that they did. I'm not sure where the line is, and I do wonder a little bit if... I don't know if they overreacted to Joss Whedon, but at some point they're going to overreact to someone. I don't know where that line is, and I have a feeling that line is moving. And there was a time where bullying would have been seen as, well, that's not... I mean, people are just... There are bullies in this world, and that's life. And that's really what it comes down to, I think, with him. It's not sexual assault, but it is, I guess, such intense bullying that it was seen as possibly racially or sexually charged that that's how he ended up in the situation he's in. That was my full-throated defense of Joss Whedon. (laughs) Well, and I I wonder (laughs) if I was at a young age in a real position of power. I don't know (laughs) to what extent I would take advantage of that, especially in an environment where it seemed like it is permissible that you're setting the tone. You think you're smart and funny and generally likable (laughs) and so that people are going to forgive whatever kind of antics you think are appropriate for your set and what is appropriate for you to say and the way that you feel that you can exert power over people that probably feel like, oh, I'm I'm only joking. But like that's kind of the way a lot of humor works is that you're sort of joking, but it still does the job as if you were saying it seriously. Like even the term bully, like if we did a, a show on bullying, we probably wouldn't have the smart head of the department kind of bully in mind though that's certainly still bullying but like we associated with the dumb kid who uses his fist because he can't use anything else and makes everybody else's life hell also i think it's as far as i know i I am not sure about what ray fisher wanted i know that ray fisher was not renewed in justice league which really sucks for him that he spoke out about something and this is what happened. I don't know the the details surrounding that, but I think that's pretty bad. But like with Charisma Carpenter, yes, she said she was traumatized and she's still working through that. But I didn't read anywhere where she's like, Joss should not direct anymore or should not create anymore. You know, and there's a difference there. It can be a great thing to call people out. It can be a great thing to remind somebody that they're making you feel uncomfortable or need to change. And it's a hard thing to do. I think the other thing that sucks about it is that it's up to somebody else to tell you that you're not being appropriate. It's like if you're putting somebody in where they feel uncomfortable, they're already at a disadvantage. And then they also have to be strong enough to tell you that your behavior was wrong. Like there's a reason people don't say it when it happens. On the other hand, it's it's hard to change behavior if you are a young idiot kid who doesn't realize that he's being sexist on set until somebody tells you, I guess. I don't know. Some people do a pretty good job of just not being sexist or racist. So, (laughs) you know, it exists out there. Now, should we talk about... Something else? <laughs> oh. Fan theories? Sorry, what were you going to say? Fan theories? And yes, I'm a fan. Do you have some have fan a, theories? I, you're, you are expert on this, or maybe the two. I've been avoiding them, so tread lightly. All right. I think it's Mare's friend's husband that did it. Who do you think it... Oh, sorry. That's who do you think s- is in the basement? Mare herself. In a twist. I think it's Claudia Black. What are your fan theories? Well, I just, I didn't think that was a thing to have, that it's the, uh, Pip Torrens is the actor. What is his character's name? The bad white guy leader of the Lord Masson. And they show his backstory, which is supposed to make us sympathize with him a little bit of like why he's so against the touch is because his daughter was instantly killed by becoming touched. But I thought it was clearly implied that no, it's his daughter in the basement. Like, is that really supposed to be something that's a secret? 
that's a fake gravestone and she's not Why really dead. Why does it make it seem like she's a monster down there? Right. And what is that? What is that? Touch? Because maybe she what is that turn. Right. Maybe she is. Maybe she became a manticore. Like you don't know what the limits <laughs> of how the touch can affect It'll you. It'll be interesting to see what that is, what that big reveal will be. And yes, I do think it's some sort of monster, but why are we not seeing the monster through the whole six episodes? And one of the theories I saw that was done before the sixth episode was that the spores, what we've come to find out are spores. They were actually alien beings and they were getting host bodies. And usually that symbiosis was successful, but in her case, it wasn't. And she turned into a monster because of it. Clearly that one was wrong, but I mean, there could be something to the way in which she did react to it. So we have now just spoiled everything, right? We're all in for anyone. I don't know if there are any theories on why the spores act differently in the past than in our present or alternate future, whatever is happening with the war being the nuclear war being fought on Earth. I hope there is a good reason for that and not a hand wavy or ignored reason for it, because it seems pretty important. I don't know if the sports aren't really in sync with people yet. And so they're giving them strange, but somehow I don't want to say appropriate powers, but like the doctor getting healing powers is super suspicious, right? It's that they're not random powers. Oh, yeah. Is that you're getting something that is suspicious in the sense that it's it's not just, oh, I got the healing snowflake fall on me and you got the, I, my breath turns something into glass. And so it's something that's either in tune with their psyche or their soul or something. Because in the future, it makes people enlightened, empathetic, something fancy. Yeah, they're saying it's more about communication based in the future. That was one of the things I saw, like more language or communication based. Whereas in the past, it's more like superpowers. Maybe there's going to be something about how there's not as much of a need for it to be like a superpower anymore because now the technology has caught up or maybe they still do have those abilities. But it's like, you know, they say when you're a kid, you're so much more in touch with so many other things like impossibilities in the world. And then you like you lose part of that as you grow up. Maybe it's a metaphor for that. And so the powers just aren't as strong through the ages. I hadn't even registered that they were different in different time periods. (laughs) So I'm not. Yeah, it was on. It was. I'm not qualified to weigh in here. It's mentioned. Or I mean, True mentions it in episode six. So is True's turn that she can see into the future actually? Is that True's turn, and is that also Stripe's turn, or is it just True's turn because Stripe is from the future and there's some weird like intertime travel thing going on? No, clearly they showed that being injected with the spores as this character who I guess none of her consciousness is left in the Amalia tree, we know. I guess so. Or it was sort of merged. I think it's none of it, right? She doesn't even, she's a widow, but doesn't remember her husband. Yeah. So the whole flashback of her, in quotes, life before is a different person who just owned this body and is now dead. Is that what we're supposed to understand? I think so. Right. So Stripe and... Stripe dies in the future and True dies in the past and Stripe's consciousness goes into True's body is how I saw it. And at that point is when the magic powder gave her the superpowers. Well, so she doesn't have them in the future. However, we got a time travel thing here going on, right? So if the aliens originally, if the Galanthi were originally giving these powers or these spores to people in the future but then they traveled back in time. Maybe the spores have gotten stronger, and that's why the Victorian people are getting actual powers. 
And there is this bootstrapping thing going on with time travel. Like she knows they're called the Galanthi from the future, but she names them that out loud in the past. And that's how they know what they're called in the future. And what else is being bootstrapped in this story? Could you help me understand? I don't know. uh, Malady more like when they finally reveal like what in episode six, what happened to her in the past? In other words, she was abandoned and she was with the Dennis O'Hare evil scientist character. But she was already nuts before that. Anyway, like there doesn't seem to be anything that's at least revealed that would justify her whole deal, her rage and vengeance and even her power being, you're saying like the doctor having a power appropriate to him is her power that she gets stronger as she inflicts pain. Is that specific to her situation? It seemed to me that her turn, such as it was, was just being able to remember that the spores came. Like nobody else could, but she could. And the only reason that True knew was because she just recognized the story that she was told being Stripe and having that knowledge. So the big betrayal was True saying, no, no, I didn't see the light. And so the doctor goes and operates on her, which makes her into an evil, crazy person instead of just a regular crazy person. Like, I I think that was the betrayal and that was the damage that was done. Is that really her turn that she gets more powerful as she gets abused? I feel like it was said, but is it demonstrated? Do we? Uh, we're going to. That's how she can. She's fighting with truth. That's how that works. Pain empowerment. She gets hit and she be- gets stronger. Pain empowerment. A thing that I picked up that Brian didn't necessarily. <laughs> that's amazing. Okay. Well, no, that's <laughs> that's fine. So maybe her that maybe that was her turn and it was just because she was touched in the in the normal sense. She was a little crazy that some part of her brain allowed her to remember the spores coming through. So I don't think she was crazy. I think they thought she was crazy because she was the one who said she saw the light in the sky, like you said. And so if she remembered that and I think do we know did all the touched remembered that or they didn't until like the second episode? Nobody. She is the only character who remembers it, as far as I can tell. So everyone goes right back to their lives. Okay. Except for her. And when we see it pass by at the end see, of the this is something one. I missed completely, too, because the bad guy is talking about how we were attacked on this time, you know, when everybody got the and they're showing a flashback of like, clearly the ship is flying overhead and things are in. So I, I don't know what I missed to, to not understand that Lord Masson, among everybody else, did not actually remember the event. The, like, just something happened and they don't know what. I'm going to rewatch this, <laughs> apparently. So I'd like to record the following line now. I got the following things wrong. <laughs> I'm going to come back later and say what those things are. But I'm going to say about uh, 20% of what I have made claims of are <laughs> probably in I've strongly made claims of having clearly remembered seeing are just not correct at all. So sorry, everybody. I don't think Malady was crazy before. I think that because she said she saw the light in the sky, she was sent off. And then mm-hmm. when that she got there and she, she trusted this doctor, her turn was already pain empowerment, but she didn't know that yet until people started treating her in such a way that she felt that type of pain because Later, she's known as a serial killer who has killed five men, all psychoanalysts. So if that's true, that makes sense that her turn wouldn't really show up until she started being experimented on. And then the move from killing just psychoanalysts to we're just going to recklessly murder a whole bunch of people. Yeah. And then just keep escalating that and then have this whole 
charade of getting supposedly uh, arrested on purpose, but it's really your body double and just as a setup to punish people who want to go see an execution. It's not the best storytelling, but it is fascinating. I mean, it's always cool when somebody takes off a disguise and you realize that character was not that character at all. But I still didn't really see the point of why she went through all that trouble and set up this alter ego and why her friends, like, I guess they were never in the same scene. But for sure, the reporter talked to the group of the touched at some point. Why that wouldn't be recognized? Again, maybe something on the second watch. She and her friend were seen in the opera scene together. It's just that we didn't Mm -hmm. know that that's what we were supposed to look for at that time. So some of these are, I think, deep Easter eggs. Well, and you also want to see how much we see these characters maybe by themselves in a way that is the director cheating at any given time. Is someone in character when they have no need to be in character? Are we allowed to reveal the end of Frozen? (laughs) The prince who turns out to be an evil prince at one point has a moment by himself where he seemed to be a charming prince when he really has no reason to be behaving that way. And it's like, don't lie. <laughs> that's, a, that's a bad cheat. You can't do that. You always have to have someone else in the room if you're going to be in character all the time. Sorry for ru- ruining Frozen, everybody. One thing I do think is a little strange is Joss Whedon's universe on HBO. It, is, it can be very jarring to see the cheesy elements of like when the song comes for the first time and it sounds like this really strange, like it's just a, it's not like a pleasing sound. And I get that it's supposed to be alien, but like, it's also like, and then like the, the light that comes and it all looks, it doesn't look real, right? It, it just, it just looks cheesy. And that's okay. Cause that's always been a part of like, like Buffy had tons of cheesy elements, but we like bought it cause that's the universe. But to go into like this bordello, which he also had in Buffy, but then you see all these titties, right? It's weird to have like this kind of childlike cheesiness in one part and then to go to there's a big orgy happening in the next is a little strange to me. I had the same problem with all the swearing in the new Star Trek shows. It's just not part of... It's so outside of my expectation that for the Admiral to keep dropping F-bombs on Picard, I'm like, what show am I watching? It was so un-Star Trek to me. And maybe it's just the price of of doing a show on HBO, right? And they, they've talked about how, I guess, Mad Men HBO passed on, and we would have gotten a different Mad Men. And it might not have been quite as iconic if there was a lot of sex in it, the way that, you know, everything just had to be implied being on, it was AMC. Overall though, I would watch season two or the extended version of season one as it will be. Hopefully I have heard that we probably won't get anything until 2023 if that happens because both of COVID and the turnover of leadership. Hmm. Wait, 2020. That seems really far. I thought it was just next year rather than this year. Maybe for, maybe that's for a season two. I can't remember if, but I, I was at the time confused as to whether or not what we saw was a mid season finale or a season finale. And it sounds like it was kind of both. (laughs) I didn't find anything particularly tonally jarring between the different atmospheres of this. I thought it was a nicely coherent world. I don't even know if Whedon means low budget and cheesy anymore, given. That like freaking Avengers is also sure. weird. So 
I guess I didn't necessarily get that. And some of the things, apparently, like that fight on the water, is just like some of the most advanced cinematic work, stunt work ever done. Like, just an amazing feat. Yeah, so I, th- I think maybe I'll try to talk my daughter into getting interested in this. So I have a, I have a reason to watch it <laughs> all the way through again and paying a little more attention. So, yeah, I don't know if the problems I had were, with it were just the, have more to do with the way that I was watching it rather than it itself. And there was enough that was great about it that I'm willing to give it quite a bit more of my patience. But I thought it was good for us to step in now to talk about it, not only for the departure of Whedon, but because like, you know, as Brian was saying about Raised by Wolves, like this might be the kind of show that after it gets going and it's in season three, you're just like, I I just don't care anymore. And I just, so it might be the kind of thing that like when it's fresh and it's introducing this new world, which is not quite X, you know, I didn't think of the X-Men either until sort of I was, you know, after the fact thinking about it. One of the, the contexts for this was like super team movies because I also just watched the new mutants. But again, it's not like there's a core team and each of them has a role. It's more like we got these two central characters and then a bunch of peripheral people and then a lot more of this whole society is infected with this. So it's a different, I think, a a different style of storytelling than the X-Men thing. That's not quite fair. Certainly not the Avengers. We could have just covered this on the female buddy comedies. (laughs) They do have some funny quips between the two of them. Well, thank you for listening, folks. Thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks a lot for listening. It was fun. And as we go, I just want to ask both of you, should have said this before thanking everybody. Do you recommend this as a binge watch or as a, I mean, we all probably were watching these as they came out. Do you think this would possibly be improved? Anyone listening now who hasn't seen it has had it spoiled. Anyone listening now who hasn't seen it might choose to sit down and pound through six hours. What do you think? I was okay with it week to week. I didn't feel like there were enough cliffhangers that I was required to binge it. No real idea. I think most things are better <laughs> binged, frankly. That was my problem with going back and watching Buffy long after it was on TV is because it was not constructed for binging. And it is too much in that episodic Smallville is another example, maybe ER like that. There are a lot of these shows that were just they were made before the binging time and it is not intended. Whereas this one, I think you probably could. I don't know if it's preferable, but certainly you, you could and it would not suffer terribly. With so many characters, it might be a little easier to binge watch it without having to drum up in your mind from seven days ago who these people are, but whether it really improves it or not. And it is so short, just six hours. All right. And on that, thank you guys for setting me straight on this. I hit a lot of things wrong in my yeah. head. As you know, always. Yeah, exactly. We'll just pick up the pieces. That's what we do. Bye. <laughs> thanks, listeners. All right. Thanks, everybody. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.